Chapter Seven of the Forgotten Planet by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Journey Through Death, Part One. It was late dusk, and the reddened clouds overhead were deepening steadily toward black. Dark shadows hung everywhere. The clay cliff cut off all vision to one side, but elsewhere Burl could see outward until the graying haze blotted out the horizon. Here and there, bees droned homeward to hive or burrow. Sometimes a slender, graceful wasp passed overhead, its wings invisible by the swiftness of their vibration. A few butterflies lingered hungrily in the distance, seeking the few things they could still feast upon. No moth had awakened yet to the night. The cloud bank grew more somber. The haze seemed to close in and shrink the world that Burl could see. He watched, raging, for the sight that would provide him with the triumph to end all triumphs among his followers. The soft, down-reaching fingers of the night touched here and there, and the day ended at those spots. Then from the heart of the deep redness to the west a flying creature came. It was a beautiful thing, a yellow emperor butterfly, flapping eastward with great sail-like velvet wings that seemed black against the sunset. Burl saw it sweep across the incredible sky, alight delicately, and disappear behind the mass of toadstools clustered so thickly they seemed nearly a hillock and not a mass of growing things. The darkness closed in completely, but Burl still stared where the Yellow Emperor had landed. There was that temporary, utter quiet, when day things were hidden and night things had not yet ventured out. Foxfire glowed, patches of pale phosphorescence, luminous mushrooms, shone faintly in the dark. Presently Burl moved through the night. He could imagine the Yellow Emperor in its hiding place, delicately preening slender limbs before it settled down to rest until the new day dawned. He had noted landmarks to guide himself. A week earlier, and his blood would have run cold at the bare thought of doing what he did now. In mere cool-headed detachment, he would have known that what he did was close to madness. But he was neither cool-headed nor detached. He crossed the clear ground before the low cliff, but for the foxfire beacons he would have been lost instantly. The slow drippings of rain began. The sky was dead black. Now was the time for night things to fly, and male tarantulas to go seeking mates and prey. It was definitely no time for adventuring. But Burl moved on. He found the close-packed toadstools by the process of running into them in the total obscurity. He fumbled, trying to force his way between them. It could not be done. They grew too close and too low. He raged at this impediment. He climbed. This was insanity. Burl stood on spongy mushroom stuff that quivered and yielded under his weight. Somewhere... Something boomed upward, rising on fast-beating wings into blackness. He heard the pulsing drone of four-inch mosquitoes close by. 
he moved forward, the fungus support swaying, so that he did not so much walk as stagger over the close-packed mushroom heads. He groped before him with spear and panted a little. There was a part of him which was bitterly afraid, but he raged the more furiously, because if once he gave way even to caution, it would turn to panic. Burl would have made a strange spectacle in daylight, gaudily clothed as he was, in soft blue fur and velvet cloak, staggering over swaying insecurity, coddling ferocity in himself against the threat of fear. Then his spear told him there was emptiness ahead. Something moved below. He heard and felt it stirring the toadstool stalks on which he stood. He raised his spear, grasping it in both hands. He plunged down with it, stabbing fiercely. The spear struck something vastly more resistant than any mushroom could be. It penetrated. Then the stabbed thing moved as Burl landed upon it, flinging him off his feet, but he clung to the firmly embedded weapon. And if his mouth had opened for a yell of victory as he plunged down, the nature of the surface on which he found himself and the kind of movement he felt turned that yell into a gasp of horror. It wasn't the furry body of a butterfly he had landed on. His spear hadn't pierced such a creature's soft flesh. He had leaped upon the broad, hard back of a huge, man-eating, nocturnal beetle. His spear had pierced not the armor, but the leathery joint tissue between head and thorax. The giant creature rocketed upward with Burl clinging to his spear. He held fast with an agonized strength. His mount rose from the blackness of the ground into the many times more terrifying blackness of the air. It rose up and up. If Burl could have screamed, he would have done so. But he could not cry out. He could only hold fast, glassy-eyed. Then he dropped. Wind roared past him. The great insect was clumsy at flying. All beetles are. Burl's weight and the pain it felt made its flying clumsier still. There was a semi-liquid crashing and an impact. Burl was torn loose and hurled away. He crashed into the spongy top of a mushroom and came to rest with his naked shoulder hanging halfway over some invisible drop. He struggled. He heard the whining drone of his attempted prey. It rocketed aloft again, but there was something wrong with it. With his weight applied to the spear, as he was torn free, Burl had twisted the weapon in the wound. It had driven deeper, multiplying the damage of the first stab. The beetle crashed to earth again nearby. As Burl struggled again, the mushroom stalk split and led him gently to the ground. He heard the flounderings of the great beetle in the darkness. It mounted skyward once more, its wing beats no longer making a sustained note. It thrashed the air irregularly and wildly. Then it crashed again. There was seeming silence, save for the steady drip-drip of the rain. And Burl came out of his half-mad fear. He suddenly realized that he had slain a victim even more magnificent than a spider, because this creature was meat. 
he found himself astonishingly running toward the spot where the beetle had last fallen. But he heard it struggle aloft once more. It was wounded to death. Burl felt certain of it this time. It floundered in midair and crashed again. He was within yards of it before he checked himself. Now he was weaponless, and the gigantic insect flung itself about madly on the ground, striking out with colossal wings and limbs, fighting it knew not what. It struggled to fly, crashed, and fought its way off the ground, even more weakly, then smashed again into mushrooms. There it floundered horribly in the darkness. Burl drew near and waited. It was still, but the pain again drove it to a senseless spasm of activity. Then it struck against something. There was a ripping noise, and instantly the close, peppery, burning smell of the red dust was in the air. The beetle had floundered into one of the close-packed red puffballs, tightly filled with the deadly red spores. The red dust would not normally have been released at night. With the nightly rain, it would not travel so far or spread so widely. Burl fled, panting. Behind him, he heard his victim rise one last time, spurred to impossible final struggle by the anguish caused by the breathed-in red dust. It rose clumsily into the darkness in its death throes and crashed to the ground again for the last time. In time to come, Burl and his followers might learn to use the red dust puffballs as weapons, but not how to spread them beyond their normal range. But now Burl was frightened. He moved hastily sidewise. The dust would travel downwind. He got out of its possible path. There could be no exaltation where the red dust was. Burl suddenly realized what had happened to him. He had been carried aloft for an unknown, though not great distance, in an unknown direction. He was separated from his tribe, with no faintest idea how to find them in the darkness. And it was night. He crouched under the nearest huge toadstool and waited for the dawn, listening dry-throated for the sound of death coming toward him through the night. But only the wind-beats of night-flyers came to his ears, and the discordant notes of gray-bellied truffle-beetles as they roamed the mushroom thickets, seeking the places beneath which, so their adapted instincts told them, fungoid dainties not too much, unlike the truffles of earth, awaited the industrious miner, and, of course, there was that eternal, monotonous dripping of the raindrops, falling at irregular intervals from the sky. Red puffballs did not burst at night. They would not burst anyhow, except at one certain season of their growth. But Burl and his folk had so far encountered the over-hasty ones, bursting earlier than most. The time of ripeness was very nearly here, though, when day came, again, the chill dampness of the night was succeeded by the warmth of the morning. Almost the first thing Burl saw in the gray light was a tall sprouting of brownish red stuff leaping abruptly into the air from a burst red parchment-like sphere. He stood up and looked anxiously all around. 
Here and there, all over the landscape, slowly and at intervals, the plumes of fatal red sprang into the air. There was nothing quite like it anywhere else. An ancient man inhabiting earth might have likened the appearance to that of a scattered and leisurely bombardment, but Burl had no analogy for them. He saw something hardly a hundred yards from where he had hidden during the night. The dead beetle lay there, crumpled and limp. Burl eyed it speculatively. Then he saw something that filled him with elation. The last crash of the beetle to the ground had driven his spear deeply between the joints of the corselet and neck. Even if the red dust had not finished the creature, the spear point would have ended its life. He was thrilled once more by his superlative greatness. He made due note that he was a mighty slayer. He took the antenna as proof of his valor and hacked off a great barbed-edge leg for meat. And then he remembered that he did not know how to find his fellow tribesmen. He had no idea which way to go. Even a civilized man would have been at a loss, though he would have hunted for an elevation from which to look for the cliff-hiding place of the tribe. But Burl had not yet progressed so far. His wild ride of the night before had been at random, and the chase after the wounded beetle no less dictated by chance. There was no answer. He set off anxiously, searching everywhere. But he had to be alert for all the dangers of an inimical world while keeping at the same time an extremely sharp eye out for bursting red puffballs. At the end of an hour, he thought, he saw familiar things. Then he recognized the spot. He had come back to the dead beetle. It was already the center of a mass of small black bodies, which pulled and hacked at the tough armor, gnawing out great lumps of flesh to be carried to the nearest ant city. Burl set off again, very carefully, avoiding any place that he recognized as having been seen that morning. Sometimes he walked through mushroom thickets, dangerous places to be in, and sometimes over relatively clear ground, colored exotically, with vari-colored fungi. More than once he saw the clouds of red stuff spurting in the distance. Deep anxiety filled him. He had no idea that there were such things as points of the compass. He knew only that he needed desperately to find his tribesfolk again. They, of course, had given him up for dead. He had vanished in the night. Old Tama complained of him shrilly. The night to them meant death. John quaked watchfully all through it. When Burl did not come to the feast of mushroom that John and Dor had brought back, they sought him. They even called timidly into the darkness. They heard the throbbing of huge wings as a great creature rose desperately into the sky but they did not associate that sound with Burl. If they had, they would have been instantly certain of his fate. As it was, the tribe's uneasiness grew into terror, which rapidly turned to despair. They began to tremble, wondering what they would do with no bold chieftain to guide them. He was the first man to command allegiance from others in much too long a period 
on the forgotten planet. But the submission of his followers had been the more complete for its novelty. His loss was the more appalling. Burl had mistaken the triumphant shout of the foragers. He'd thought it independence of him, rivalry. Actually, the men dared to shout only because they felt secure under his leadership. When they accepted the fact that he had vanished and to disappear in the night had always meant death, their old fears and timidity returned. To them, it was added despair. They huddled together and whispered to one another of their fright. They waited in trembling silence through all the long night. Had a hunting spider appeared, they would have fled in as many directions as there were people, and undoubtedly all would have perished. But day came again, and they looked into each other's eyes and saw the self-same fear. Saya was probably the most pitiful of the group. Her face was white and drawn beyond that of anyone else. They did not move when the day brightened. They remained about the bee tunnels, speaking in hushed tones, huddled together, searching all the horizon for enemies. Saya would not eat, but sat still, staring before her in numbed grief. Burl was dead. Atop the low cliff, a red puffball glistened in the morning light. Its tough skin was taut and bulging, resisting the pressure of the spores within. Slowly, as the morning wore on, some of the moisture that kept the skin stretchable dried. The parchment-like stuff contracted. The tautness of the spore-packed envelope grew greater. It became insupportable. With a ripping sound, the tough skin split across and a rush of the compressed spores shot skyward. The tribesmen saw and cried out and fled. The red stuff drifted down past the cliff edge. It drifted toward the humans. They ran from it. John and Tama ran fastest. Jack and Corey and the others were not far behind. Saya trailed in her despair. Had Burl been there, matters would have been different. He had already such an ascendancy over the minds of the others that even in panic they would have looked to see what he did, and he would have dodged the slowly drifting death cloud by day, as he had during the night. But his followers ran blindly. As Saya fled after the others, she heard shrieks of fright to the left and ran faster. She passed by a thick mass of distorted fungi in which there was a sudden stirring, and panic lent wings to her feet. She fled blindly, panting. Ahead was a great mass of stuff, red puffballs, showing here and there, among great fan-like growths, some twelve feet high, that looked like sponges. She fled past them and swerved to hide herself from anything that might be pursuing by sight. Her foot slipped on the slimy body of a shellless snail, and she fell heavily, her head striking a stone. She lay still. Almost as if at a signal, a red puffball burst among the fan-like growths. A thick, dirty red cloud of dust shot upward, spread and billowed, and began to settle slowly toward the ground again. 
it moved as it settled, flowing over the inequalities of dye ground as a monstrous snail or leech might have done, sucking from all breathing creatures the life they had within them. It was a hundred yards away, then fifty, then thirty. Had any of the member of the tribe watched it, the red dust might have seemed malevolently intelligent. But when the edges of the dust cloud were no more than twenty yards from Saya's limp body, an opposing breeze sprang up. It was a vagrant, fitful little breeze that halted the red cloud and threw it into some confusion, sending it in a new direction. It passed Saya without hurting her, though one of its misty tendrils reached out as if to snatch at her in slow motion. But it passed her by. Saya lay motionless on the ground. Only her breast rose and fell shallowly. A tiny pool of red gathered near her head. Some thirty feet from where she lay, there were three miniature toadstools in a clump, bases so close together that they seemed but one. From between two of them, however, two tufts of reddish thread appeared. They twinkled back and forth and in and out. As if reassured, two slender antennae followed, then bulging eyes and a small black body with bright red scalloped markings upon it. It was a tiny beetle, no more than eight inches long, a sexton or burying beetle. Drawing near Saya's body, it scurried onto her flesh. It went from end to end of her figure in a sort of feverish haste. Then it dived into the ground beneath her shoulder, casting back a little shower of hastily dug dirt as it disappeared. Ten minutes later, another small creature appeared, precisely like the first. Upon the heels of the second came a third. Each made the same hasty examination and dived under her unmoving form. Presently, the ground seemed to billow at a spot along Saya's side and then at another. Ten minutes after the arrival of the third beetle, a little rampart had reared itself all about Saya's body, following her outlines precisely. Then her body moved slightly in little jerks, seeming to settle perhaps half an inch into the ground. The burying beetles were of that class of creature which exploited the bodies of the fallen. Working from below, they excavated the earth. When there was a hollow space below, they turned on their backs and thrust up with their legs, jerking at the body until it sank into the space they had made ready. The process would be repeated until, at last, all their dead treasures had settled down below the level of the surrounding ground. The loosened dirt then fell in at the sides, completing the inhumation. Then, in the underground darkness, it was the custom of the beetles to feast magnificently, gorging themselves upon the food they had hidden from other scavengers, and, of course, rearing their young also upon its substance. Ants and flies were rivals of these beetles, and not infrequently the Saxon beetles came upon carrion after ants had taken their toll, and when it already swarmed with maggots. But in this case, Saya was not dead. The fact that she still lived 
though unconscious, was the factor that had given the Sexton Beetles this splendid opportunity. She breathed gently and irregularly, her face drawn with the sorrow of the night before, while the desperately hurrying beetles swarmed about beneath her body, channeling away the soil so she would sink lower and lower into it. She descended slowly, a half inch by a half inch. The bright red tufts of thread appeared again, and a beetle made its way to the open air. It moved hastily about, inspecting the progress of the work. It dived below again, another inch, and after a long time another were excavated. End of chapter 7, part 1